This argument I get from quote-unquote conservatives, well, Ukraine is so corrupt. Yeah? Should Chinese tanks be rolling up, you know, Constitution Avenue because we have a corrupt administration? Of course not. We're a country made up of people. Today I sit down with Sebastian Gorka, host of America First, former strategist for President Trump, and author of The War for America's Soul. Sending unaccountable pallets of cash is dumb. We discuss the Russia-Ukraine war, the fog of disinformation. We, the Americans, convinced post-communist Ukraine to give up all its nuclear weapons. To give them to who? To Moscow. And the politicization of America's intelligence agencies. I, as the son of a political prisoner in a communist regime, never believed that I could sit here in America as an American citizen and say, we have political prisoners. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Sebastian Gorka, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. It's been a while. It's great to be back. It, it really has been too long. Um, I've been, you've been frequenting a lot of these Twitter spaces that, uh, and, and, you know, It's having, not good for my insomnia. It's, it's, it's kind of unbelievable the long hours that some people have, have put into this whole thing. Um, of course, part of the reason is you've been following these Twitter files releases and the weaponization of agencies that this has kind of been exposing, the kind of, you know, manufacturing or creating of perception even, right? <laughs> Aside from the censorship, there's this other side. I want to talk about all this. Before we go there, though, um, something I don't cover a lot is the Russia-Ukraine war. And part of the reason I do that is there's this fog of information war that covers all of this. And it's frankly very hard to understand what's going on. The propaganda is dominant all over the place. And so why don't we just start with this? And why don't you kind of tell me what you see is going on? Yeah, uh, I would say propaganda, absolutely, but also rank ignorance and dogmatic ideology. So... Um, Many moons ago, before I joined the Trump administration, I was a professor at the Marine Corps University. And someone called Steve Bannon heard me give a speech about Russia at a uh, conference. And then he called me to his offices and said, I'd like you to be the national security editor for Breitbart, which I didn't need. I didn't need another job. I threw out a stupid number. Unfortunately, he said yes. And so I became the national security editor for Breitbart. But one of the reasons I actually accepted his offer was because of the paucity of sophisticated, I don't mean sophisticated, just slightly more than um, Neanderthal thinking when it comes to national security on the right. Because for about 20 years, if you're a conservative and the issue of national security comes up, you have two options. You can either be in the neocon camp, you know, the Wolfowitzes of the world, the Doug Fights of the world, the Cheneys, we're going to invade other countries and turn them into democracies at the end of a gun barrel, which is of course absurd, or you're a neo-Buchananite, you know, Tucker Carlson adherent who says, forget the rest of the world, they can go to hell in a handbasket, basket. it's irrelevant to us. And my, my argument is, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And there is a whole panoply of options between telling everyone to go to hell or invading those countries. 
I would like to see that level of slightly more sophisticated thinking when it comes to geopolitical issues. And it is being reflected once again when it comes to Ukraine. There are either, you know, the insane people like Lindsey Graham who say, send them you know, US battle tanks and deploy everything possible. It's the, the ultimate test of Western civilization. And there are others like Tucker Carlson who say, this is irrelevant. You are funding a neo-Nazi regime that's fully corrupt. We should not give a damn about Ukraine and they can just, you know, go up in flames. No, absolutely wrong. Uh, this war, which is now past its 300th day, is very important to America. Why? Because former KGB colonels who are thugs and murderers invading any country, be they corrupt or not, is bad. Especially a KGB colonel, Vladimir Putin, who for the last 20 years as president has been saying not only Ukraine, but Poland, the Baltic states are illegitimate fake nations that have no right to exist. That's not a good thing to even countenance, let alone allow to happen. On the flip side, sending tens of billions of dollars to Kiev with zero accountability in praxis is also not strategic. I've said from the beginning, I think I, I wrote this in Breitbart, I wrote a piece saying right at the get-go after the invasion, America should be involved, not with troops, not with massive you know, military involvement, but to provide or to help to provide Warsaw-era pact equipment from those NATO nations that have it, like Poland, like Hungary. The, remember the MIG deal that was on the table and then shot down by the White House? That makes sense because Ukraine needs weapons it knows how to use. It doesn't need Patriot missile batteries that nobody in Ukraine knows how to handle. So give them Soviet-era equipment so they can fight for themselves. Give them ammunition because they need ammunition, especially artillery ammunition. And then lastly, in terms of military involvement, zero real military involvement for the US or NATO, but because we dominate the ISR domain, the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance domain with our satellites, provide Kiev with those intelligence target sets that allow them to extract the most damage on the invading forces by targeting them effectively. That's what we should have been doing 300 days ago. That's what we should be doing today. But the idea that we ignore it or we deploy the 82nd Airborne, neither of those is good geopolitics. Well, and, and the sad thing is, we don't have these discussions, <laughs> even on the right. Forget about left and right. We don't have a slightly nuanced discussion about, yeah, uh, invading countries, invading each other in Europe. What does that mean for America? Something that I mentioned, you know, um, of course, I'm Polish, as, yeah. as most of our viewers know uh, very well. And, you know, one of, the, one of the narratives that you hear is that, you know, supporting Ukraine, that's a globalist position, right? right? And that this is what Russia is against. So what, what I say is, well, Poland, you know, is deeply committed to helping Ukraine. And it's Poland is definitely not a globalist country. We can agree, but why? And maybe the question we should ask is, why is Poland so committed to, to helping in this situation? Why is it worried about its border? I mean, you, you suggested something a bit earlier. Um, and, you know, what is Russia's history in the region? And that's, I think, also very important. So as a child of those who suffered 
under communism, my, you know my story, my father was an anti-communist after World War II, was betrayed by Kim Philby, the British double agent, arrested, tortured, and at the age of 20 given a life sentence in a communist prison. Um, he was liberated in the revolution of 1956. So for me, you know, I, I bring a certain perspective to this as a Hungarian or a descendant of, of a Hungarian family. But of course the Poles are supporting Ukraine to the nth degree, because they understand that they're next. This isn't necessarily the recreation of the Soviet Union, because uh, we know the Russian Federation has a GDP equivalent to Italy today. But let's remember what Vladimir Putin said about the 20th century. He said, the great, quote, the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the last century was the loss of the Soviet Union. So if it's not the recreation of the Soviet Union, it's the recreation of a quasi-imperial Russia. And that's the history of Russia. Uh, if, if, whether it's 21,000 Poles murdered in Katyn Forest in World War II, whether it's the children that were killed in Afghanistan by mines disguised as plastic toys, or whether it's a hospital, a maternity ward in Ukraine being shelled by the Russians today, this is the history of the Kremlin. It may no longer be a Tsarist regime, but it is an empire because this, this man acts as an emperor. So I'm not surprised the Poles understand because they've been victims of history, whether it's the Germans or the Russians, for centuries. Let's pick up some of the narratives that are out there, okay? Yeah. Um, like one of them is, um, this is NATO aggression, pure and simple, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, NATO picked up Poland and a whole right. bunch of other states right on the periphery of Russia. I mean, there, there must be some truth to that. Well, did they pick them up? Let, let, let's 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 you know, dismantle this. Let's dissect this. NATO. This is where the moral equivalency argument comes back. This is the the Michael Moore Chomsky. The West is just like the East. There's no difference between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Everybody's evil. Garbage. Garbage. You know, it may have been the Warsaw Pact for friendship and cooperation, but what was it? These were satrapies. These were captive nations. Hungary did not have an option to join the Warsaw Pact in 1955. Neither did Poland. The Baltic states were swallowed up by Stalin during, in World War II. Uh, NATO is what? It's a voluntary association. It's like joining a club. And you have to, you can apply for NATO membership, but any nation that applies must demonstrate to the North Atlantic Council, to the extant members, that they bring something of value to the collective defense of the club, and they have to contribute to the collective defense. Since when is it our job to say nations like Hungary or Poland shouldn't have been allowed? That if they want to join, they get to join. That's not the encirclement of the Russian Federation. And let's be clear, the whole argument collapses like a house of cards when you say, sorry, we're talking about Russia, right? A nation with 11 time zones and 4,500 nuclear warheads. So who's exactly, th I mean, what, what is Lilliputian Lithuania joining NATO, a threat to the 4,000 nuclear warheads of this nation with 11 time zones that spans from Kaliningrad to the Chinese border? Again, ignorance, woeful ignorance of geopolitics. And then lastly, there, there's a moral aspect. And of course, geopolitics should be something done with cold calculation. But America has always been that shining city on a hill. You know, we, we are the only nation in the world.
that is founded on the principle of individual liberty and freedom. No other nation has that. And what did we say to Ukraine in the 1990s? Let's remind everybody with the Budapest Memorandum that was signed by the, the US government, was vouchsafed by the British government. We, we, the Americans, convinced post-communist Ukraine to give up all its nuclear weapons. To give them to who? To Moscow. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Ukraine was the second largest nuclear nation in the world. It had more nukes than China. It was only second to the Soviet Union. Oh, no, sorry, the third, to, to us. The Soviet Union, Russian Federation, America and us. We didn't want them to have nukes. We wanted to control the, the club of nuclear forces. So we said, give them, give them to Kremlin, give them back to Russia, and we will vouchsafe your security. We will protect Ukraine. What did they do? The idiots believed us. They trusted us, a democratic administration. So our reputation is on the line because we told them, don't keep the nuclear weapons. And here's this tragic reality. There never ha would have been a Russian invasion if Ukraine still had those nuclear missiles. We told them to get rid of them. So we bear a moral burden as well. So let's, let's talk about further narratives, yeah. right? Um, you know, America has lost its moral high ground. I mean, look at what has happened in all these agencies. We're actually gonna talk about this a little bit later in more yeah. detail, but there's a lot of questions about the goodwill of various you know, key American intelligence agencies, law enforcement. So, you know, isn't this, all of this just part of this corruption that's being unearthed? This is what a lot of people are saying, are concerned with. And frankly, this is also what the Kremlin is saying. Well, of course, I mean, good information uh, operations, good propaganda only works if it is based upon a kernel of truth. If it's fully fabricated, then it's easy to shoot down. But yes, we, we have a very serious problem in this country. And for example, I, I, as the son of a political prisoner in a communist regime, never believed that I could sit here in America as an American citizen and say, we have political prisoners. We have, we have political prisoners less than two miles from where we are sitting right now, Jan. People who were targeted by the FBI after January the 6th, charged with misdemeanors, misdemeanors like parading in Congress, who were kept incarcerated, often in solitary, for more than two years without an arraignment. Now, the U.S. Constitution is clear. Every American, Republican or Democrat or Independent, has the right to rapid justice. Two years? behind bars before you, you see a judge? That's political persecution. So yes, we have, we have a mighty problem today because we have this weaponization of the most powerful intelligence and law enforcement architecture in the world, whether it's the FBI, the CIA, or DHS, if we look at the Twitter files. And for me, this is personal. I mean, the viewers of, of, of your, your, your show may not know this, but before I joined the administration, my wife and I ran a company, and it was the only company that had an external contract with the FBI for counterterrorism training on ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And I would travel 10, 15,000 miles a month going from one FBI field office to another FBI field office, because my specialty was jihadi ideology, and lecturing FBI agents, intelligence analysts, SOS support staff. I, I, I've lectured probably more than 6,000 
FBI agents and analysts before I joined the White House. And for me, every time I arrived at a new field office, the ASAC, the senior agent, would meet me, give me a nice challenge coin for that office, a little pin for my lapel. And I was proud to, to help the preeminent law enforcement agency in the world. If the FBI knocked on my door tonight, Jan, I would say, go to hell, talk to my attorneys. If they lose me, if they lose Sebastian Gorka, who worked in the White House, who still has a top secret clearance, then we have, a tr we have trouble at the Hoover Building. And we now have the evidence. An FBI that deploys 20 armed agents in body armor to serve a warrant against a pro-life father of seven who has had his misdemeanor assault charge outside an abortion clinic dropped months previously, but they raid his home as his children are screaming, don't take our daddy away. That's, that's fine in North Korea. That's fine in Venezuela. It is not okay in America. And that's what the FBI has sadly become. So this is the question, right, that a lot of people, and you mentioned, you know, these are some of the discussions that people are having on the right. Was Ukraine a place for laundering American money? There's, I think it's where I think the tally right now is 110 billion dollars yeah. um, put towards support Ukraine. It's not clear what the oversight of that is. I mean, these are these are very real questions, yeah. and you know, these are. I mean, absolutely, and, and I stand by what I wrote more than 300 days ago when the war started, sending unaccountable pallets of cash to any country is dumb. I don't care whether it's Afghanistan, the Ukraine, or whether it's, whether it's Iraq. This is, this is not, A, it's not good geopolitics, and B, it smacks of corruption. Now, 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 I don't want to make excuses for anyone. I think Zelensky is a great leader. I think his regime is very problematic. I mean, this is the same country where Hunter Biden received $83,000 from one of the biggest Ukrainian energy companies that was eminently corrupt for a no-show job in a sector he had no experience in. This is the country where Joe Biden you know, extorted the, the government saying, I'm going to hold back a billion dollars worth of trade credits if you don't fire the chief prosecutor, who, by the way, is investigating the company that gave my son $83,000 a month for a no-show job. This isn't Switzerland. This isn't Vanuatu. This isn't Belgium. This is a problematic country, but it is still a geopolitical country, which, by the way, has also suffered greatly. People ask me, what is the end state of this conflict? I'll tell you what the end state is. Ukraine will fight, not to the last man. Ukraine fight, will fight to the last 12-year-old who can lift an AK-47 after the Holomodor, in which Stalin killed upwards of six, seven million Ukrainians, literally starved them to death. Ukraine is not going to negotiate a peace. They will fight forever. And I, you know, ultimately, irrespective of the levels of corruption and how stupid or corrupt the Biden administration is, there's one argument I like to make. If 1776 matters to you as an American, as a conservative, well, guess what? Ukraine is fighting their 1776. If getting rid of despotic influence, invading forces, be they redcoats or the troops of the Russian Federation, 
there is an analogy here. And yes, they're corrupt, but so is Washington. Washington, D.C., under the current administration, is a swamp that is putrid. Does that mean I'm fine with China invading? I mean, this argument I get from quote-unquote conservatives, well, Ukraine is so corrupt. Yeah? So is Washington, D.C. Should Chinese tanks be rolling up, you know, Constitution Avenue because we have a corrupt administration? Of course not. We're a country made up of people, not politicians. Mm. If Kiev is corrupt, okay, but they're tens of millions of people. They're children. There are refugees. There's a moral content as well, which shouldn't drive everything we do geopolitically, but it is also an aspect that should inform our response. But tens of billions of dollars with no accountability, no, not so smart. So another narrative, which also has truth to it, is that in the east of Ukraine, um, many of those people are primary Russian speakers. Essentially, in many cases, they're Russian. In many cases, yeah. they're um, amenable to some kind of Russian rule or over, you know, slight, somewhat Russian rule. Um, so why not just let those regions be taken and, you know, call it a day? <laughs> so uh, on, on that issue, I will defer to somebody who actually has knowledge on the ground. One of my favorite international podcasts are two former men of the left. Um, it's the podcast is called Trigonometry, and it's co-hosted by Francis Foster and Konstantin Kissin. Konstantin was born in the Soviet Union. He's an ethnic Jew who um, has married a Ukrainian and who visits the Ukraine regularly. And I had him on my show recently, America First, where he said even those members of his family who are Russian-speaking ethnic Russians from the East, after the first three months of this invasion, have totally turned on the Kremlin. And they are pro-Ukrainian sovereignty. Now, if that's what I'm hearing from somebody who actually has family in the region, who's been there since the war erupted, I tend to give that credence. So uh, the idea that they're ethnic minorities and there are referenda, yeah, referenda run by who? By the Kremlin? Are we seriously going to take at face value a referenda taken by Kremlin forces? And then lastly, there's, there's a matter of you know, we've had a taboo in Europe for 70 years since the cessation of hostilities in 1945. We said aggrandizement of a nation's territory through the use of force is illegal. You can't just expand territory by invading it and taking it, which is what they did in Crimea, which is what they did in South Ossetia, which is what they did in Abkhazia, which is what they've done with the frozen conflict in Moldova. This is, this is the SOP. This is a standard operating procedure. Self-determination, yes, but the use of force by greater nation militarily to territorially expand, I, we were supposed to put that to bed after 1945. I, I don't care what, what ethnicity certain individual groups are. Taking them by force is never correct. You know, it's often framed as a... U.S. proxy war, and they'll say during the Orange Revolution, yeah. right, there was a pro-American government right. installed, you know, again, perhaps, but, you know, th there was definitely a significant American influence. I Absolutely. don't think anyone would doubt that. Absolutely. But, but the idea that my dad was um, 
in, inorganic. It was all engineered. Yes, there, there are problems with U.S. government involvement, but beyond that, there are problems with you know George Soros and you know the the Orange Revolution kind of NGO activity. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think you can argue that Zelensky was put in place by external forces that were fully artificial. And, and, and again, even if the regime is corrupt. It doesn't justify a nuclear power invading them. It doesn't justify the shelling of maternity clinics. It doesn't justify what we heard of in Mariupol, where families were found in mass graves tied together with wire. The father, the mother, the children. This is, we've seen this all before. We've seen this all before. Whether it's Katyn or whether it's um, Yakiterinburg, whether it's uh, what happened to the Tsar's family, this is what they do. And irrespective of the entanglements and involvements of others, none of it can ever be used to justify the acts of the Kremlin. Well, there, then another common thing that I actually hear yeah. uh, from people is, well, it, it's the threat of the biolabs. Right. Uh, the biolabs, which were built by who? I mean, this, this is where you know, I, it drives me insane that people don't take a s second to do just a little bit of homework. You don't have to use Google. You use another search engine of your choice. Why are there bioweapon labs in Ukraine? Because the Soviet Union built them. This isn't, we, we may have helped maintain them to do research on defense against bioweapons, but they were a legacy of what? the Soviet Union. Is it wise to find out what the Soviet Union was doing? So let's be clear, in the Bioweapons Treaty of 1973 that was brought between the US and, and the Soviet Union, before the Bioweapons Treaty, before the ink was dry on those signatures, the Soviet Union built a massive, illicit biological weapons empire. I mean, read the autobiography of Ken Alibekov, who ran Biopreparat. Biopreparat was making anthrax, was making biological weapons all through the 70s and 80s with leaks, with accidents, and they were using the territory of other countries like Ukraine. Uh, back in the 1990s, the US had an idea, okay, well, if Ukraine is now an independent country, and if they have these legacy capacities, why don't we find out what the Soviets were doing in these labs? Perhaps it will help us create defensive technologies against further attacks, because who knows what's going to happen with proliferation of these technologies? Are they going to end up in the hands of Al-Qaeda or other actors? Let's just find out what they were doing. But the idea that what? Are we really positing that the United States was building biological weapons in Ukraine to deploy against Russia? This, is, this harkens back to the, the propaganda of the Cold War. I mean, remember, this is now unclassified. What, what were we told by a certain newspaper in India in the 1980s? AIDS. Oh, oh, that's artificial. That was made at Fort Detrick by the U.S. Army. That was a U.S. government bioweapon to be used against you know, ethnic minorities in America. That theory, that absurd conspiracy, still circulates today, despite the fact it is now demonstrable that was planted in an Indian newspaper that was actually founded by the Kremlin in India as a propaganda tool. This is classic Russian disinformation. And the fact that conservatives are picking it up and running with it, again, 
Stop with the moral equivalency. Did a murderous regime invade another country and take its territory? Yes. Does that regime have 5,000 nuclear weapons? Yes. Have they done this before? Yes. Is it a threat to all decent nations? Absolutely. Should we be involved with boots on the ground? No. But just like the French, remember, the United, King, the United States would not be a, a free nation today if it weren't for other nations. I mean, we may have issues with the French, but if the French hadn't, hadn't got involved with their naval forces after 1776, this would still be a colony. I mean, there would be no United States. This landmass would be part of the Commonwealth of Great Britain. The French helped the Founding Fathers establish independence. So just like the French helped us, it is incumbent upon us to help those who are fighting for their freedom to win it for themselves, not to do it for them. We, the French didn't fight for us. We did it for ourselves. Likewise, it's up to the Ukrainians. I want to jump to talking about some of the things that were revealed through the Twitter files, but kind of the broader yeah. question. But before I go there, you know, what, what's described, what has been described as United States imperialism, mm -hmm. for example, you know, the 20 years in Afghanistan, right. which seemed to have yielded not much, actually, aside from, you know, an incredible amount of spending and, and frankly, lives. Yeah. There's this sense that the U.S. turns out to not be this shining city on the hill that you and I want it to be and needed to be and maybe even is compared to most nations other nations right and that's just the reality that a lot of people are facing through these disclosures right and they may be asking themselves hey wait a second maybe some of these things that um you know russia i'll, I'll use russian disinformation russian disinformation as far as we can tell has been a code word for trump actually basically right for the last however many years so when you say that it when you use those words it almost you know, it almost loses meaning. So this is the reality we're in right, right. now, right? I don't know what you think. Well, I, I would say to those who, who call us an empire, uh, can you give me an example of an empire that uses force in other countries and then voluntarily leaves and hands those countries over to nationals of that nation? It's a very strange empire, isn't it? I mean, whether, we can have, I understand, fatigue with, with you know, military inveterism in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. But who runs those countries now? Is it some kind of proconsul from America? Or is it an Afghan president? Is it an Iraqi president? So I, I would never justify the neoconservatism of the 1990s. The idea that you can create democracy at the end of a gun barrel is insane. Nations have to want representative government. You can't force representative government on anybody. If they want to live in a tribal system, with, you know, 36 different languages, let them do that. Let them fight amongst themselves. But what, what did America do? It perceived a threat. It responded to a threat after 9-11 in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Uh, it made some fallacious statements about the connections between al-Qaeda and, and Saddam Hussein. There were connections. But the idea that a Ba'athist secular Marxist regime would give weapons of mass destruction to a theocratic jihadi organization that hated Saddam as much as they hated us is, is, is again, Ignorant. It's ignorant. But a threat was perceived. A faulty threat analysis was used to justify the use of force in Afghanistan, in Iraq. But at the end of the day, when it didn't work out, what did we do? Are we still there? 
Did we, did we say this is, you know, the 51st and the 52nd state of the United States, which is what Russia does, which is what the Soviet Union does, which is what real empires do, whether it's the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire. No, we said, okay, guys, we've been here long enough. We've killed enough of Al-Qaeda. We've destroyed their training camps. We've tried to kind of build civil society with education for women and stuff like that. Not going too well, but why don't you choose your president? And we're out of here. And they chose their own government. Empires don't do that. So again, a, a little bit of sophistication when it comes to analysis. Now, empires don't invade other countries and then let the people of those countries choose their own governments. Just to be clear, with, yeah. with Afghanistan, um, I don't think the people chose the Taliban. No, no, no. I'm talking about when they had their own president, like Karzai, right? We, we, no, I'm not talking about what the disasters that happened with Biden's removal. I'm talking about when we allowed them to elect their own president, Hamid Karzai, the same in Iraq. When that happens, empires don't do that. Empires don't allow you to have your own election. What happened with the Taliban, yeah, sadly, was not an election, and, and, and the, the routing of U.S. forces to the cost of 13 people murdered, war fighters, U.S. war fighters murdered, uh, in that terrorist bombing uh, was appalling. But I'm, I'm being specifically uh, talking in reference to what happened to, to the sovereignty of those nations after our military action. And so I guess this is the case, but we, and this is how we can, I think, sort of segue into this mm -hmm. part, talking about the kind of realities of our, of our agencies. I mean, what people would say is that these, for example, the Afghani government, I mean, convincingly couldn't, exist without the U.S. support. So effectively, it was a part of U.S. empire. And they would say that about any other scenario of which there are more than one uh, that, that exists in that kind of a structure, right? And so in looking at, you know, some of these, the, you know, activities of some of our agencies that are being unearthed with the Twitter files, not just through Russiagate, right. you know, which right. um, first, and then, you know, I guess the same playbook apply, seemingly applied you know, to COVID and other things subsequently, you know, th this, this does actually create very real questions for people. Like what I'm saying is that, that if there is this, you know, Russian and Chinese disinformation, it's, it's a lot easier, it seems, for them to do that now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, w w without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, let, let's look at what we've lived through in the last six years. I mean, Russian, Chinese, Iranian information operations, uh, well, they just need to point at what's happened in the last six years and, and maybe embroidered to a minuscule extent. What has happened? I mean, I, I did a, a short list on my, my weekly show on Newsmax of what we as Americans have witnessed in six years. So a, a man who was elected by 64 million Americans once and then received more votes than any other incumbent president in history, my former boss, President Trump, was accused of colluding with Russia, was accused of um, tax fraud, was accused of misogyny, was accused of being Islamophobe, was impeached not once, was impeached twice after he left office, was targeted by the Southern District of New York's uh, prosecutor for tax fraud, and, and, and then had his home which is under 24-hour Secret Service protection, raided by armed agents of the FBI on some spurious 
classified document charge, which, by the way, for those who aren't familiar with it, every president maintains the highest security clearance till they die. Jimmy Carter still has TSSCIQ clearance. It's, it's weird, but he does. Uh, and the idea that the president can't have classified information even after he leaves office, especially when he says, he declares, the documents related to the Russia collusion hoax are declassified. There's only one person in the world who can declassify by fiat, and that is the president of the United States, which he did before he left office. So if you look at just this string of events, and then the January 6th committee, and then the leaking of his IRS tax records, you can't say the deep state is now a tinfoil hat conspiracy. It's real. And now, thanks, God bless Elon Musk, thanks to what we're seeing in the Twitter files drops, Beyond even the FBI, when the Department of Homeland Security is literally telling the biggest news platform, social media app to delete these accounts and to delete these tweets, you don't need a lot of propaganda to say America is, pro, you know, is, is, is in a state of rank corruption. And of course, the conspiracy theories will flourish in this environment. So don't get me wrong. We have real problems that have to be looked at in this new Congress that a, that, that a new Republican president has to get to the bottom of. But that still doesn't mean that there is moral equivalency mm. between us and a KGB murdering Kremlin or theocratic murderers in Tehran or, you know, a little rocket man in North Korea. That does not mean there is moral equivalencies between our regimes. That's the important point. Well, so often people will often say, you know, I cover uh, the Chinese Communist Party, as you well know, uh, on the show, we've talked about it extensively. Yeah. And people will say to me, well, you know, I'll cover, for example, the social credit system. Development. Yeah. Hey, this is what we have in America. Yeah. What I usually say is, well, think of it this way. If we allow this course to continue, yes, that is where we'll be, but we're not there. Yeah. Right. And this is sort of a, but, but, but that's, uh, what do you think to, what do you think about that? Well, this is a real challenge for me. This is something I've been grappling with, especially as a child of those who lived under both fascism as children and then communism. What is the word for what we are experiencing here in America? Because here in America, it's not, it's not the scenario of 1917 in St. Petersburg. It's not 1948 in, in China with the Kuomintang versus Mao. It's not even North Korea with, with a cessation of hostilities and then a DMZ. It's very different. This is, this is very much like the, the frog in the, 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 the pot of boiling water. Because we don't have Laogai. We don't have gulags here. But we do have cancel culture. We, we have, you say the wrong thing and you will be cancelled, but not by the state. This is important. Here we have, it's more of a fascistic model. It's more like Mussolini with the co-optation of the corporate state. That Twitter, that Facebook, that Bank of America will acquiesce behind closed doors to the demands of the regime. The idea that Mike Flynn, General Flynn, 32 years in uniform, Director of Defense Intelligence, uh, a combat veteran, an American hero, his wife's credit cards are canceled by her bank because she's married to Mike Flynn? Now that's not uh, George Orwell's 1984. It's some kind of composite. It's some kind of hybrid. 
where a private actor, you know, depersons, deletes an individual for their political identity, not because you know, they received the email from the White House, but because Mike Flynn's wife deserves it. So I don't know, maybe together we can struggle to find out what the new taxonomy is, what the new label is, because this is communism or fascism um, by osmosis, by transmogrification. It's, it's not revolutionary. It's not by use of overt military force. It's by the co-optation of power voluntarily in the private sector and the party and the government. And held together by what? By, by ideology in part and by, I suppose, financial interests as well. Well, this is a, this is a very good question. So uh, ideology on behalf of the political actors who are overtly political. So whether it's the DNC, whether it's the, the Biden administration, whether it's the embedded ideologues at places like DHS or the FBI. And, and on the flip side for the private sector, fear. Why, why does Coca-Cola, why does IBM, why does Microsoft give money to BLM? I really don't believe the CEOs of these companies are hardcore Marxists. It's a protection racket. We give you money and you won't come after us. You won't accuse us of being misogynist members of the white patriarchy. It's fear on behalf of the corporations. Here, here's $5 million for BLM for CRT training. Leave us alone. So it's, it's all of these things combined. And it's not universally applied because, you know, you'll... There's a whole, there's millions upon millions upon millions of people in this country that kind of have no idea that they, they, they would listen to what you just said and say to themselves, this man is crazy. Yeah, it's not true. Right. They say it's like, not true. This, right. this is, uh, we live in a free country, a land of great opportunity. Right. You know, I've had these opportunities. I'm an immigrant and look, look what I've been able to accomplish. You know, I boot, bootstraps. bootstraps. And, 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 and they'd actually be right yeah. um, to um, some extent. Uh, yeah. Until, yeah. until their daughter comes home from school and tells them a man was naked in the girl's changing room and he says he's a girl. I mean, I'm convinced of the fact that, and you're right, most people, most people are normal. They're not like you and me, Jan. I mean, they, they, they don't eat, drink and sleep politics. They're sane. We, we, we are mired in this. We, we are addicted to it or what have you. And so we see what's going on. If you're an average American, what's your biggest concern? Making the car payment at the end of the month. Making sure your kids have got a new pair of shoes for the, the next semester at school. Which is as it should be. But, but I'm convinced of the fact that, for example, the transgender extremism, which is, again, actually neo-Marxist Frankfurter school evolution of, of, of left-wing politics, the, de the denial of truth. I remember, you know, if you read John Kennan's original telegram, the long telegram, he said, what is truth for the Soviet Union? It's whatever the party deems to be useful as truth. Again, these are all connected. Correct. So I think the transgender extremism, to, to say chromosomes don't matter, uh, a 14-year-old girl can have her breast removed and become a boy. And, and, and if you dare, dare call her a girl, we will cancel you. I think this is going to be the red pilling of America. I think tens of millions of people are going to say, excuse me? Boston Children's Hospital is doing hormone replacement therapy to transition young boys as young as 14. This is nuts. Well, and, and you know, another of these red pills that, you know, 
millions of readers of the Epoch Times, for example, were people who realized one day after 2020 that, you know, the government had these powers of coercion about, you know, where you can go, yes. uh, what you can do, and then later to make sure what you, what gets put in your body. Right. Um, and copied from China. Mm -hmm. Let's be clear. I mean, if you look at Neil Gardner in the UK, if you look at Fauci, if you look at CDC, there was a template for what they were doing. And they were saying China's doing it right. Locking down millions of people, closing businesses. They willfully chose the CCP's inhuman dictatorial measures for response to a virus which, by the way, came from China, from that biodefense lab in Wuhan. I, I think you're right. I think these two moments, these two Damascene moments that will red pill tens of millions are the transgender extremism that denies reality and people saying, oh my gosh, what, what happened in America? A nation built on, on freedom, rugged individualism, the pioneer spirit, they forced people to close their businesses down so they couldn't feed their children. God willing, that will be the moment or will be the, the blue touch paper on the firework that makes people wake up to say, yeah, that Gorka guy or that Yekielik guy, not, not too crazy. Well, and, and subscribe to Epoch Times. Because <laughs> God bless you guys for, for doing what you do. Seriously, you, your colleagues at Epoch, Cash and everybody else, you, you, are, you are the epicenter of helping to wake millions up. Well, so very, very much appreciated. Um, I guess my question is, at this point, we're, we're going to finish up here. The only route I know to help try to make things better is truth-telling. Yes. That's, I, I, I don't know other ways. I'm not a very political person as much as I feel like I'm forced to, to sort of imbibe all this stuff. They've um, made everything political. Can I be clear here? People who say I'm not political, tough. When, when they're putting masks on your children in school, that's a political reality. The left made everything political. You have no choice. You can't separate yourself from politics. This is a very important thing to understand for, for the viewers. In this kind of a reality where we are, you know, many Americans are actually very much demoralized, have lost yes. faith in their governing bodies, and, you know, thereby much more susceptible right. to this you know, actual disinformation from foreign actors who are doing it in overdrive. And I know as a fact, because I see the China stuff coming out all the time. How do we face this? Three things. Number one, recommit yourself to the truth. Only the truth matters. Which means number two, never ever censor yourself. This is one of the biggest things you can do. Whether it's on Facebook, whether it's the, the water cooler at work, whether it's the local barbecue. If you find yourself with the urge to not say something because you think it might get you in trouble, but it's the truth, you must say it even louder. You don't have to get aggressive, but never ever sense yourself. I think it was Vaclav Havel, you know, who said, you know, one, tr oh, Solzhenitsyn, one truth told by one man can collapse a whole empire of lies. That's true. That's true. And then, and then lastly, <laughs> whether you like it or not, you must get politically engaged. Everyone has a role to play. And most importantly, locally. Look, I worked in the White House. It's cool to work in the White House. It's cool to be a senator or a congressman. But really, those things don't matter. Our founding fathers understood. De Tocqueville understood. Politics is really local. It's about community. My wife, Jan, detests politics. 
detests it to her marrow. But when the local library, which has an $8 million budget, local library, started running uh, drag queen story hours for children, she said, what? On my tax dollars? Not happening. She ran for local office to stop that grooming of young children. If my wife, who detests politics, can stand up to the plate, I don't care where you live, you can live in California, Massachusetts, I don't care. You have a role to play. Get politically engaged. Don't just listen to my radio show. Don't just watch Jan's show. Don't just read Epoch Times. Use it as fuel to get engaged because it is up to us. We can be the shining city on the hill again, but only if every single one of your viewers and the Epoch Times readers gets engaged. That's the lesson of the 20th century. Well, Seb Gorka, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thank you and Happy New Year to all of your viewers and listeners. Thank you all for joining Sebastian Gorka and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.